0: Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning as we gather around together the Word of God. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, as we will, Lord willing, conclude uh, this chapter uh, this morning and move into chapter 4. As we do so, I again want to echo some of what Scott said a few moments ago as uh, just a thank you for being here. Uh, this week to bless Cindy as she uh, retired. And, and as he said, uh, I came in yesterday, uh, she retired on Friday. That was her last day, was Friday. I come in on Saturday and she's here. I said, Cindy, didn't we revoke your key yesterday? Uh, but she had a, a great time and was so grateful for you all to be here, to love on her she had a tremendous number of gifts, and uh, a lot of tears were shed on Friday. Uh, she will definitely be missed in the office, and uh, so uh, we're very thankful for her. And we continue to praise the Lord for her as well. Uh, taking our Bibles and looking to Philippians chapter three, uh, we are uh, turning the corner a little bit in the book of Philippians, and we will certainly do so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter four, which. Lord willing, we'll be again this morning. But as we do so, we've been asking this question of who do we imitate? Who are those that we follow? And Paul has said, follow my example, be a mimicker of me as I follow Christ, as I mimic Christ. And then Paul gave to us an example as we were moving through chapter 3 of those that we ought not to follow. We should be straining towards the goal, leaning into the finish line. We do not let up. And then Paul says, but I want to show you some others who are in the church. They seem to be doing good things. There's a lot of works that they do, but they are not those who follow the Lord. And so we spent time last week there. But Paul turns again to us, who know Christ as Savior. And he invites us to think beyond today. What's to come? What is our home? Where is our home? And who do we long for to see at home? When the Titanic went down in 1912, there were some 1,500 people that went to a watery grave. After news of the Titanic's tragedy reached the world, the challenge was now, because this was not a day and age where you had reporters or cell phones or anything like that, the challenge was to inform relatives whether their loved ones were among the dead or among the living. And without those news reports coming in, the information was slow in coming. And if you remember the airline tragedy a few years ago, where news never came, where they longed to find the wreckage of the airliner from Malaysia Air. They never found the full wreckage. And the agonizing elements of waiting and slow, as slow information slow, came in moment by moment, but not satisfying. At the White Stars line office in Liverpool, England, where all of those who had gathered waited for news of their loved ones' uh, events that had taken place, that what had happened to them, a huge board was set up. And on one side of the board was the heading that read, known to be saved. On the other side was a Board, and the heading on the top of that was known to be lost. Hundreds of people gathered closely every day to watch the updates as messengers would bring new information. Those waiting held their breath, wondering on which side the messenger would write a person's name, their family member's name, their loved one's name. Although the travelers on the Titanic were either first class, where you paid a little bit more, or second class, where you didn't pay quite as much but you still got quite a few services, or a third class, it didn't matter after the ship went down. When the ship went down, it was known to be saved, known to be lost. This morning, the idea that we focus on is this. If Christ is your Savior, you are a citizen of heaven, an ambassador serving in the embassy. And the embassy is the church. And so, this morning as we dive in, we recognize that at the end of the age, no matter what you held in your possessions, no matter how many people you reached, no matter how much influence you had, no matter how much fame you had, there will be known to be saved and known to be lost. So Paul reminds us as we come into verse 20 of chapter 3. He reminds us of our home. He says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time and his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you today. We have sung of your power, we've sung of your worth. We truly seek to glorify you in our time now in your word. Lord, this is a glorious passage that is before us, but it causes us to consider the things at the end of this life, whether that be through the rapture of the church or whether that be through death. We recognize that this is a topic that we often don't discuss. But Paul is very bold about the discussion of these wonderful events that would take place after those moments. Lord, we are excited and enthusiastic to study them this morning. We are those who are leaping for joy, anxious, for our home going. And so I pray that this morning you would give us an understanding of what will transpire during those moments, that it will affect the way that we live, the way that we walk, the way that we talk today. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time we can spend in your word that you alone would be glorified in it. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak as well, that your people will respond Not because of the word spoken through me, but because of the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in them taking the word that was spoken, using it for your glory. Lord, we do desire to glorify you in all that we do and say today. We exalt you together. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray these things. Amen. As we move into the text that is before us, we have to ask the question, where do we belong? And really, that is a critical, key idea that... Paul is going to draw out because what he has been discussing to this point is we started this new paragraph beginning in verse 17 where he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is saying, we're walking someplace. We're pilgrims along the journey. Follow us. You do not live here permanently. This is just a temporal world. And he says, As he moves through verses 18 and following, he says, I want to tell you of those that I weep over, whose God is themselves, who worship and serve their own ambitious desires, and they love themselves. Paul now says, but you. He's referring back to the brothers that he spoke of in verse 17, this endearing term to say, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not like those who are even in the church, who seek to bring destruction in the church. You have something different, a reason to be different. And he reminds them of their citizenship. And he no, notice how he does this. He says in verse 20, he says, uh, verse 19 at the end, the end, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with mind set on. On earthly things. That's where we left off last week. The minds of those who are twisted against the things of the Word of God, who are within the church, but whose God is themselves, their mindset is here and now. And that's it. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We do not think temporally. We ought not to think temporally. There's the temptation, certainly, to do so, but Paul is saying that you will not think temporally when you understand who you are and where you're going. There is a great divide between those who are saved and those who are lost. Those who are saved are heaven-bound and should be heaven-focused. Those who are lost are earth-bound and earth-focused. They're the ones that we encountered in verse 19. They are earth-bound And earth focused. Everything that they live for is in the here and now. For those who are citizens of heaven, we are heaven bound and we must be heaven focused. We've already discussed the importance of citizenship for the Philippians. We've talked about this before. Philippi was a province, was a place where the Romans had set up. Camp, as it were, and they had brought in a number of retired Roman soldiers who would then bring all kinds of, infuse all kinds of uh, patriotism back to Rome in the place of Philippi. And so even though Philippi wasn't near Rome, there was still a significant influence of patriotism that was inundating every element of society. And so if you were born in Philippi, not only was The patriotism's strong there, but the citizenship was Roman. So it didn't matter if you were Greek, it didn't matter if you were from Macedonia, it didn't matter if you were from Israel, if you were born in Philippi, you had Roman citizenship. And citizenship, we understand, is very important. If you've ever traveled internationally and you have a U.S. passport, you know that that oftentimes will get you through security a lot quicker than if you have a red passport. If you have a red passport, it takes you a while to get through certain elements of security. If you have a blue passport, you typically get through things quicker. And so we recognize the value of citizenship and the recognition then of the Roman citizenship is if you're a Roman citizen, ask Paul, he understood this. You couldn't be legally tried in anywhere in the Roman Empire. You couldn't have a a Roman prefect over you, you could petition straight to Caesar, and that is what Paul does. There is great value to Roman citizenship, and the inhabitants of Philippi thoroughly enjoyed it. So they understood what it meant for citizenship. The word for citizenship is a root word from which we get our word political, politician, metropolitan, metropolis, and police. That is the The base word and so we see the civic elements that drip through citizenship when paul uses it in this context it refers to the one with the right to live in those political and societal constraints so if you're a citizen of rome you had all of the rights and the privileges of being a citizen of the most powerful governments in the world That had tremendous influence. If you were a citizen of Israel, you had a small number of rights. But if you were a citizen of Rome, you had all of the rights, all of the privileges, all of the status. Paul says, to you and I who know Christ as Savior, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is going to go through and he's going to compare the two citizenships in the next few pages or next few words. As he does so, there's going to be a lot of elements for us to gravitate towards, but Paul is speaking specifically to the Philippian believers. There's a lot where we draw out now as believers who recognize the challenges of being earthbound versus heavenbound. There are those who will say in the church that they are citizens of earth. Paul has identified them. Their God is themselves. They use our language, they use our habits, they use our traditions, but their God is themselves. To say you're a citizen of earth would infer that you are bound by the things that are earthly. And that is what this group, 17 and 18, verses 17, 18, and 19, have done. Now Paul says, what is our citizenship? What is the impact of our citizenship. If our citizenship is in heaven, it is not earthbound. If our citizenship is in heaven, then what we do, what we say, what we interact with today must be different than those who are earthbound. One author put it this way. He said, we live on planet earth, but we really belong to another world. We pitch our tents of our life down here, but we are not getting our roots settled in and down. We are just passing through as this world is not our home. We are only here as temporary tenants, as our main residency is in heaven. We are not, and the author continues, we are not vagabonds without a home. Neither are we fugitives on the run from home. We are pilgrims. We have a home up there. Beloved, it is so easy for us to... Consider the impact of our citizenship and dismiss it because of the temporalness of the society in which we live. Say, well, there's pressures on me today to conform to the standards of the world. But we're also reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that we are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And part of what Paul meant there was to be heaven-bound, not earth-bound. To be heavenly-focused, not earthly-focused to be those who look ahead to what is about to take place, what is actually more eternally important. We are not vagabonds without a home, nor is our residence here. Our home is up there. As a believer, wherever you travel, you represent another country. As you travel through this one, you are a citizen of heaven. And so therefore, you are... Not looking to put down roots here, you are looking to get home to do what is necessary for the safe arrival to home, which Christ has done for you. And so Paul has reminded the believers of their citizenship, and he's pointing them that direction. He's comparing against those who whose God is themselves who's driven by their own fleshly desires and ambitions. And while they look successful in the church, he's saying, dig deeper. Don't just buy what they're selling. Dig deeper and recognize that you don't belong here. This is not your home. And we really, truly look around our world today and we say, amen. Aren't we thankful that this is not as good as it gets But if you're earthly-focused, earthbound, this is it. This is as good as it gets. But Paul calls us to look to our homeland, to look to home. And he says, we belong in heaven. We are citizens. We have the rights and the privileges of citizens of a kingdom far greater than the Roman Empire, far greater than the U.S., far greater than anything that could be found here on this planet. And he says, but we're searching or we're waiting for something greater than that. He says, we're waiting for the Lord. We're waiting for the Lord. What we have here is more than a home. What Paul is dealing with here is more than a home. Notice what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, but from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love where... Paul leads us because we're saying, yes, I want to go home. I want to be in heaven. But Paul doesn't really get into the glorious elements of that yet. He's about to, but he doesn't allow us to get all the way there before he reminds us who we wait for. Who are you waiting for? You see, heaven is one part of the equation, but it is who you will meet when you arrive there that is the most important. We who believe in Jesus Christ are doing more than waiting for the upward call. We're not just warming our chairs, waiting for the rapture to take place. We're doing more than just waiting for heaven. Heaven is not just a place, but it is also in the presence of the imminent relation with Christ. As we travel this world eager for another, are you anticipating the running into your Savior's arms? That's what Paul is saying. Here's Paul chained to a Praetorian guard as we have studied throughout the book of Philippians. He is one who is looking forward and desirous of that day when he will run into his Savior's arms. He's not looking for a following to follow after him and to coddle after Paul's desires and ambitions to make sure that Paul has everything that he needs. He's not pleading with the Lord to release him from the Praetorian guard saying, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm rejoicing. Why can Paul rejoice in those circumstances when he's chained to a Praetorian guard? Because Paul's home is not here. Paul is not depressed by what he sees and the situations and world around him because he knows he's going home. He knows that he's going to run into his Savior's arms. What motivates, drives Paul, and causes him to follow faithfully after the things of the Lord is he knows that one day, very soon for Paul, He's going to run into his Savior's arms. This is more than a home. We are waiting for the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an interesting phrase for Paul. Paul actually uses this very rarely. Only a small handful of times does Paul use this construction that he uses here. The one that we anticipate is defined here in verse 20. The one we anticipate running into his arms is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is interesting because Paul very seldom uses the word Savior at all. He uses the word Savior about a dozen or 15 times throughout all of his letters. So all of the letters of Paul, he refers to Savior only about 15 times. And to combine that, Savior with the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, exceptionally rare. It's not that Paul is denying those things. In fact, we recognize that Paul uh, uses these terms in very important and meaningful places to draw our attention to it, and that's what he's doing here. Some believe that Paul has refrained from using Savior as often as he could have because the Romans used that title for Caesar. So Caesar was the Savior, and the way that that would naturally work out... And it was especially true during Nero's day. It was when there was natural disaster, who was the one who would come and save you? For Nero, who probably burned Rome, who was the one who was going to come save you? This was a whole gimmick, a whole play by Nero to say that Nero was the only one who was going to come and save you, so Nero is the savior of the world. That was the phrase, the title that was used of Nero, and it was used of many others as well who had predated Nero. During Paul's day, the image of Caesar would be stamped on coins with the title, the title on the coin, Savior of the World. Furthermore, the title Lord was also given to the emperor of Rome, to Caesar. During times of distress, natural disasters, war, famine, the empire looked to the emperor. He was the one who was going to save them. He was the one that was going to rescue them from whatever it was, whether it be natural or man-made disasters, it was going to be the Caesar who was going to save you. So Paul reserves the use of Lord, and he reserves the use of Savior, especially in this construct, for something very, very important. It is almost as if Paul is asking, as he's using this title, it's almost as if Paul is asking the Philippian believers, which Savior and Lord would you rather have? Which Savior and Lord would you serve? He has already highlighted for us those whose God is themselves, whose earth-bound, who's living for the here and now, he said, there are those in the church, but believer in Jesus Christ, don't follow those because they're not really of the church, they're just in it. Says, Who would you rather serve? Caesar, or the God that they are following themselves in many cases, or the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Which God would you rather serve? Which one would you rather have? Scott read for us in our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 45 and 14 and 15 and verses 22 and 24, Isaiah lays out a lot of the names of God and the work of God that was on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the parallels between Isaiah 45 and the book of Philippians in reference to the names of God is quite clear. In fact, so far to the point that It seems as if Paul is citing Isaiah 45 when he says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The parallels are very, very clear. Paul tells the Philippians that we have an infinitely better Savior than Caesar. That Rome, or leader in Washington, cannot supply what Christ can supply. Cannot give what Christ can give cannot bring you to a home that is your home. Paul is reminding the Philippian believers that while there is temptation to be earthly bound, look up. Look to Christ. Beloved, in a day and age that we live where there's so many challenges, you can turn on the news and see challenge after challenge after challenge. Isn't it comforting to know that we serve a Savior who is infinitely better than the government of the United States of America. A Savior who is infinitely better than Caesar. A Savior who is infinitely better than anything that this earth-bound place can give. So Paul moves on and he says, we're, we've got a home. Our home is heaven. We've got one that we're following, one that we're leading towards, It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's a promise. There's a promise that we also hold. Verse 21, as he continues on in the chapter, he says, We will transform, or rather, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul now says, let me tell you how Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, let me tell you how he is infinitely better. And it is in this promise, we are those who expect a future resurrection. We're expecting a future resurrection because of who we serve. If you serve yourself, this is it. If you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, there is more to come. We can expect in the future resurrection of our bodies from the grave... That we will be transformed from mortality to immortality, from weakness to strength, from finiteness as we are, to be those who are glorified, not entirely as the infinite, but moving from our limitations as we struggle with them today to greater. For a few moments on the Mount of Transfiguration, three disciples of Jesus saw The glory of the transfigured Lord. Write down Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 and specifically in verse 2. Read that later on today as you understand what this transfiguration looked like. It records that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. There was a radical transformation as the veil of humanity was pulled back. For a moment. It is possible that the reader in Philippi had not yet received the letters that were written to the Corinthians or to the letters that were written to the Thessalonians. And this may be the very first time that they're hearing of the coming work during the resurrection and glorification. So they may not know about the rapture yet, they may not know about the resurrection that is to come or all those. Who are called to the Lord will be brought to the Lord to meet him in the air. This is entirely different than the resurrection that will come at the end of the age. The language is not similar at all. This is for those who know Christ as Savior during this age, the age of grace in which we live. We will be called to meet our Savior in the air. The resurrection that is to come later, Christ will be here, He will come to earth, and there will be a resurrection. But this resurrection, this glorification that is going to take place that Paul is referring of here to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians as well, this may be the first time that the Philippians are hearing this. Can you imagine as they're reading through the letter and and whoever is providing the oratory here is reading through and providing a little bit of instruction as they read through the letter, somebody in the crowd would have said, wait, 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 go back and read that last section. Read that last section. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to, even to subject all things to Himself. Our mortal bodies will be changed and brought, I love the phraseology that Paul uses here, our lowly bodies will be like His glorious body. And some of your translations will say conformed to his glorious body. That's a better word, conformed. We're going to be transformed from this lowly body. And this morning, I woke up yesterday. Actually, it started yesterday. Yesterday, uh, I started to feel a little bit of my age. Somebody said, when you turn 40, things start to go downhill fast. I'm like, I made it past 40. I have no problems. They're starting to catch up. Uh, now, <laughs> I'm going, okay, maybe it was earlier. Uh, yesterday... Uh, In the morning, I was getting ready, and I sat down, and I stood up. That was it. And something in my back went out. I didn't jump from a high building. (laughs) I didn't twist funny. I didn't pick something heavy up. I stood up, and something popped in the middle of my back. And it's still hurting today, and I'm still feeling it today. I can't wait for my glorified body. Paul points to the change, the transformation that's going to happen when this lowly body is conformed to the likeness of the Lord's glorified body. When this lowly body is conformed with the likeness of what the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, what the disciples saw looked upon, the apostles looked upon when they saw the risen Savior. It's interesting that as we think of the glorified body, Paul doesn't give us a tremendous amount of detail, but just quickly reflecting back on the Lord's glorified body, he retained the scars. He retained the scars of the crucifixion. He We recognize that there was continuity in his form. So those who knew Jesus before knew Jesus after. There will be conformity, continuity in your likeness as well. You will be recognizable after your body has been transfigured. Christ remembered events, people, places, etc. He remembered it all. So will you. One author writes this, when you receive your glorified body, there will be a continuity of DNA, a continuity of physical form or memory or personality. It will all be perfected in glory. But you will still be uniquely you. By the power of God, and I love that you're going to be transformed. Your lowly body is going to be transformed into conformity with the glorified body of Christ. Christ. And it's going to be Christ who does that work because he is able to do it. If this is all that there is, what a depressing thought. That this earth is all that there is. Amen to a wonderful truth that you are not going to be left here if you know Christ as Savior. You're not going to be left in this being the best. That they're all there is. By the power of God, he will discard your body... He's going to transform your body, which are now temporary, weak, and sinful, and conform it to his likeness, brilliant, sinless, and regal. Christ has the power to subject all things to himself and contemplate this truth. As Christ brings all of these things, he says at the end of verse 21 to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ has the power to subject all things to himself. You do not serve a little g, God, when you serve Christ. You do not serve yourself. You do not serve your flesh. In fact, Paul is very clear. There's a very clear distinction. And there are times in this temporalness where you say, I'm struggling in this because my flesh wants to go this way, but the cause of Christ wants me to go this way. Paul pulls that down, and he helps us to understand why we follow Christ. Why do we not follow the things of those who are earthly bound? Christ has the power to subject all things to himself. Every molecule, every cell, every atom, every strand of DNA, every element from the microscopic to the gigantic, all things will be transformed by Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing will remain, that has not been transformed. And so, what do we do with this? Besides the the joy and the wonder of contemplating these wonderful truths, what do we do do with this? Paul helps us out with that as we move into chapter 4. So we move into chapter 4, sorry, transformation in detail, that's what we just worked through. I got excited ahead of myself, so there's a... I'll give you a chance to fill that in, transformation in detail. and Finally, there's a perseverance that we must possess. Perseverance that we must possess. Paul says, do not waver, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. Paul moves to application. You see, Paul doesn't leave us just focused on eternity. He says there is a responsibility today as we walk through this life. There is a response that we ought to have to the truth that is so wonderful that we cannot really fathom all of its elements. We must not be those who waver. There are those who he's already described verse 18 for many of whom i have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of christ their end is destruction their god is their belly and they glory in their shame their minds set on earthly things paul has highlighted those already and those who fit that description are trying to tempt you to join them in the same they want you to say hey Look how comfortable it is to serve yourself. Certainly that's more comfortable than serving the Lord, and we would say, yes, it is. It's offensive to other people for me to be a walking Christian. Wouldn't it just be easier for me to go and enjoy the ball field on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and Sunday evenings? Wouldn't it be better for me to, at work not to have to talk about the things of Christ? Wouldn't it be better for me to just do my own thing and pursue my own pleasures and my my own pursuits of things? Finances, wealth, retirements? Wouldn't it be better if I just did those things that suited my fleshly ambition? And there's a world that is trying to pull you, beloved, into that. They're trying to pull us all and say, Why are you fighting so hard? Life is so short. Just go and enjoy it. Have it your way. That is the mantra of the day. You do you. That is an earthly and fleshly mantra. If I do me, I do things that are wicked and evil, depraved, deplorable. Christian, you are called to something different, but you are called to something far greater. If this is all there is, this is lousy. This here is lousy. This planet, if this is all that there is, if this is all that there is to life, and life everlasting isn't a thing at all, then this is depressing. Paul says, there's more. And it's far greater than this. He answers it by saying, All of this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He says there is something far more glorious, far more wonderful on the other side of the rapture of the church. Do not waver, then, believer. Do not buy the lies that are surrounding us in our world. Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't give up. No matter what struggles you face and the opposition that you encounter, no matter what sin you struggle with, no matter what challenges you face on a day-to-day walk, and no matter what corruption surrounds you, stand firm. Stand firm. Why can we stand firm? Because this is, if this command were just issued directly, if this command was just launched out to you and I, we would say, okay, that sounds fine, but I, I like some of what I'm hearing, but why? That's what Paul has told us to this point. And it's important for you and I to remind ourselves and to remind one another. When you came in today, part of what is joining together, part of the richness of joining together as the body of Christ is iron sharpening iron. Loving one another, building up one another, strengthening one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, Scripture reminds us. And do we see the day approaching of Christ's return? Yes, we do. We And so all the more, and yes, it is a slog. Yes, there is challenges. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there are fights. But Paul has told us that there is a place where we're going to go. You are a citizen. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are a citizen of heaven. So live like citizens of heaven. But it's not just a place. It's not some angel floating on a cloud with a harp and Peter standing at the pearly gates. It's not just, okay, that's where we're all going to go. There's a person. There's a person who will come for us at any moment, we're told. Who will come and meet us who know Christ the Savior of this age in the clouds where we will meet Him there. And it's a beautiful picture, actually, of John chapter 14 as described in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians tells us that the Savior is going to meet us in the clouds. Why is he going to meet us in the clouds? By the way, that's what the angels told us as well back at at the time where Christ would ascend. He's going to appear again in the clouds. Why is he meeting us in the clouds? It's a beautiful picture of a Jewish wedding where the groom is preparing a place for us, John 14. And then if he prepares a place for us, he's coming again to take us to himself. That is a beautiful picture of what is happening now as the bride of Christ is being made ready here. And we'll meet the bridegroom as he comes halfway back to us. We'll meet halfway in the air. We are waiting for a person. It's not just some cold, fluffy heaven. We're waiting for the close intimacy with our Creator God who saved us. That's what we long for. That's why it's worth enduring the challenges of this life. So that when we run into His arms, we can hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we will fully be embraced in the majesty of the glory on high. So the discouragement and the frustrations and the aggravations and the challenges of this life, this is not all there is. And let me say it this way, all the wonderful things of this life, the successes, the celebrations, the finances, the joy, the vacations, whatever it may be, that's not all there is either. We are waiting to resume our citizenship or to take hold of our citizenship in heaven We are waiting for the person who's going to come and receive us unto himself. And then, at that time, there's an amazing promise of what we are going to become. We will not be stuck in the broken, sin-stained flesh that you now inhabit. Your body will be transformed. Glorified to be like Christ's glorified body, brought into conformity with the image of the body of Christ that is glorified. You will still be you. You will still have all of the elements of your remembrance and far greater than your memory today, perhaps. But you will be glorified. You have a home, you have a Savior. And you will have glorified bodies. We wait, even now, to be taken to heaven by our, the Lord of heaven. And so Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't waver today. Don't turn back. Don't fall to the side. Stand firm. At the end of, the, at the end of our lives... Whatever course you've chosen, earthbound or heavenbound, at the end of our lives, it won't matter how much money you had in your pockets, how important we were in the eyes of other people, or how many friends we had. What will matter when our ship sinks, when our journey ends, is whether our names are written in the registry of earth or in the registry of heaven. If your name is written in the registry of earth, the reservation's been made. And when the log comes in, the title at the top of the board will be those who are known to be lost. As citizens registered with reservations made in heaven, the title at the top of the board will be those who are known. To be saved. It is interesting that Paul picks up on this idea and he uses it. He's using the registration of the babies born in Philippi to be born of Roman citizenship, and there's a book where all of those legal entries would go into. John's going to pick up on that as well and use it in the book of Revelation, and he's going to refer to it as the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you are known to be lost. It is not how much you had. It is not how many friends you had. It is not your sway or your confidence with the Apostle Peter. It's not going to matter. The question is, are you saved or are you lost? That's it. And the only way that you can move the name from lost to saved is by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's no other way. As citizens who have made your reservation, you've accepted Christ as your Savior. You've not tried to work your way there. You've not tried to accept something else. You've accepted Christ alone by faith alone. You're a citizen registered with reservations made in heaven. And we eagerly anticipate that future moment when we are glorified, perfected, and immortalized for an eternity. Not just the temporal hundred years or so that you may have here. Let us be found faithful in serving the Lord with a diligence that causes us to say to the world around us, You may be enjoying it now. Earthbound, but this is all there is. This is the best it's going to get for you unless you accept Christ as Savior. Let us be those who stand firm, unmoving, unwavered, especially by those who think that this is the best it gets. Let us not let them sway us. Let us live for an eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads thankful that Christ is coming for His church. Lord, the entire weight of Scripture reminds us of the great and wonderful truth of Your great love for us. Demonstrated in these few verses that Paul has Provided for us, we see the evidence, the message of a glory that is too wonderful for us to truly comprehend. But Paul is quite clear, inspired of the Holy Spirit, that we who know you as Savior have a citizenship that is not here. We praise you for those who have gone on before us throughout church history, like John Bunyan, who have even pointed it out and called this the pilgrim's progress. We praise you as well for the testimony of Paul and many others who have said that there is a glory far beyond this earthly, temporal place. Lord, remind us as we encounter the challenges that we'll face this week, that are temporal and earthly and earthbound, May we run through the test. May we understand why we stand firm. May we ask the questions of those challenges. Is this pointing to heaven? Does it remind me of my Savior? Is it profitable for a glorified body? Lord, I pray that we would be those who stand firm. We would test everything. Whether it's the behaviors and the temptations of friends. Or the appeal of wealth or fame, while individually those elements may not be sinful, We know that when that becomes our focus, we become earth-bound, instead of heaven-bound. I pray that we would not think as those who are earth-bound. Because we are those who are going to heaven, those who know you as Savior, going to heaven, may we be those who think heavenly, heaven-focused for your glory. Lord, there's a great number of challenges that we will face in this week, and I pray that you would give us the strength to endure, strength to stand firm, to obey the instructions that we have received from your word this morning. Now as we rise and we continue in worship and singing and glorifying you, I pray that we would do so as those renewed with a passion to look home, that we would sing as those who are representing you in your embassy, which is the church, and may a true worship fill our lips, that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do in these next few moments. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of this. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.